This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. It is 5pm in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson. Alongside this evening, Christine Aquino. We have much to talk about. Quick check of where we are with markets. The FTSE 100 down half of 1% at the close uh, at 75.51, spot 81. Stateside, the Nasdaq is off by 1%. The S&P down by half of 1%. Christine, I really feel we're in a weird environment at the moment that, that central banks keep trying to convince investors that they are serious. So last night it was the minutes. Today it's the accounts of the ECB, and both were more hawkish than anticipated, maybe less so on the Fed front because of what Leo Brainard said uh, the day before. But there does seem to be this sense that, that equity markets almost need to be shocked into believing that central banks are serious about tightening policy. Absolutely, Guy. I think there's this feeling that equity markets don't really fully buy into this hawkishness until they're actually seeing it happening. I think it's a bit of a boiling frogs in a pot sort of situation right now, at least for equities, don't you think? Absolutely. And and you've seen that once again. Uh, we've had Bullard comments this afternoon. He's talking about adding another 300 basis points. Jim Bullard, obviously, uh, on the FOMC, keenly observed in terms of what he's been saying, because actually, in some ways, his hawkishness uh, has been right out there in front uh, of what the, ref, what the rest of the FOMC have been saying. Uh, and over here in Europe, it's interesting, JP Morgan, not JP Morgan, ING and Deutsche, Christine, are now talking about 50 basis points for the ECB as a first hype, we'd go from basically negative 50 on the depot rate to zero. That would be a huge move. Absolutely, Guy. And it would be a complete shock to the system as far as money markets pricing goes, because even two years out from the current environment, there's barely any sort of movement being priced into the ECB rates curve. And so if that sort of scenario comes to pass, bear in mind, it is a tail risk scenario for both Deutsche and ING. But if we do get to that tail risk scenario playing out in reality, that's going to be a heck of a lot of repricing that's going to have to happen in markets. We'll come back. We'll talk about that repricing a little bit later on in the program. Before we do that, we need to get you a headline update. Here with that headline update, Mr. Charlie Hi, Thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. Moments ago, the United Nations here in New York voted to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. That vote, 93 to 24. There were 58 abstentions. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization is preparing for potential chemical attacks or accidents in the war in Ukraine, just according to the agency's European head. NATO and American officials are warning the war in Ukraine may last for weeks or even years as Kyiv's foreign minister pleads for urgent military assistance before it's too late to make a difference in its fight against Russian forces. London-based Shell says its withdrawal from Russia will result in a 3.1 billion to 3.8 billion pounds of impairments, while also warning investors that extreme energy price volatility in the first quarter could hit cash flow. And Shell also said it decided to idle two liquefied natural gas vessels chartered from a Russian company in the latest example of an energy giant seeking to avoid future sanctions or public condemnation tied to the war in Ukraine. Nestle says access to food is a basic right and a key value for the world's largest food company following criticism that the Swiss firm didn't 
scale down its Russian activities quickly enough after the war in Ukraine started. After pressure built up, Nestle said back in March that it suspended the vast majority of manufacturing in Russia while maintaining the sale of essential products such as infant formula and medical nutrition. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. As Charlie says, within the last few minutes, the Senate in the United States uh, on Capitol Hill has voted to strip Russia uh, of its uh, trade status. We'll now expect the House uh, ultimately to follow. Um, We have had a big NATO meeting today in Brussels uh, and the NATO Secretary General talking about the possibility of this conflict lasting for weeks, months or possibly even years, which then brings us on to how ultimately were that to be the case, would the West continue to support the Ukrainian forces that are fighting on the ground at the moment. There is an expectation that we are going to see a fresh offensive being launched by the Russians. Uh, The Ukrainians are pleading for more weapons to support their forces on the ground. We heard earlier from the country's foreign minister. My agenda is very simple. It has only three items on it. It's weapons, weapons, and weapons. We are confident that the best way to help Ukraine now is to provide it with all necessary to contain Putin and to defeat Russian army in Ukraine, in the territory of Ukraine. The next few weeks could prove pivotal. Uh, We have been providing weapons for the Ukrainian forces. But if we are going to see a fresh offensive for the Russians, that offensive must be resisted. That certainly seems to be the line coming out of many Western capitals. But how will that happen? Therese Raphael writing an interesting piece today. Only one thing will help Ukraine now, not sanctions, but weapons, echoing the words we've just heard from Foreign Minister Kubela uh, at the NATO meeting. Therese joins us now. Therese, the the next few weeks could be quite pivotal. We've seen Russian forces withdrawing. They are regrouping. They are rearming. They are rotating fresh troops in. What should we expect to happen next? So the Russian strategy from here is quite clear. They've withdrawn from the area around Kiev. Uh, They will seek to get a quick... um, a, a, a quick defeat of Mariupol and then uh, affect a sort of pincer move from the north and the south uh, surrounding Ukraine's forces in the east and then try to consolidate territory in the Donbass. And, you know, if that happens, if they're fully successful on that, it's a very, very different picture than the one that, you know, has produced a fair amount of sort of celebration and congratulations in Western capitals where, you know, there was a sense that the Ukrainian military had done so much better than was expected. Yeah. Uh, Western military aid clearly helped. And uh, there was a sort of celebration of Western unity. But that could change very, very rapidly. And, you know, w- what I understand from military experts yeah. I've spoken to is you know, we really have uh, three or four weeks before uh, we could see a pretty dramatic change uh, of the landscape in Ukraine. And in that time, what will make a difference is uh, a, a real increase in the level, not not just the quantity, uh, the yeah. quantum of weaponry, but the kind of weaponry going to Ukrainian well, well, forces. We'll talk about that in just a moment. I, the, the soldiers, sailors, airmen talk about the fact that no plan survives contact with the enemy. The Russians have been very guilty of that. To what extent have their, have their, how will their tactics adapt to a much more formidable foe in the, in the, in the form of the Ukrainian forces? And in terms of how that is going to shape what is needed 
in order to repulse them once again. I, tactically, they are going to change. Does the, does the weaponry needed to be provided change as well? I mean, tactically, we've already seen the change. They've given up the sort of three-pronged attack that was completely misguided that they that, that they launched at the beginning of the war. We're now looking at an attack along a single axis. Um, it it's, works to Russia's advantage because it's easier to supply their troops. Um, there yeah. is, uh, it's, it's harder to provide air coverage to the Ukrainians. The Joint Forces Operations area, which is that Donbass area, these are the most you know, well-trained, best-equipped Ukrainian forces, but they're tired now. And they will, some of them will need to be rotated out. There will need to be fresh forces kitted out to come in there. In terms of the equipment there, you know, the Ukraine has used up a lot of ammunition, a lot of its surface-to-air missiles. Um, all of that will need to be replenished, uh, but it will need, um, you know, things like better radar. A lot of the radar has been taken out. Yep. Um, Anti-tank um, guided weapons, so-called loitering munitions, which wait passively around a target before attacking. So some of these uh, are are you know being supplied. Some of them are not being discussed, but probably being supplied. We've now heard the Czechs are supplying Soviet-era T-72 tanks, which should help, um, particularly because the Czech Republic actually can make the parts for them. So sometimes there's talk about supplying tanks and MiGs, but you know, it, it, what matters is that the platform can be supported with yep. parts and that the Ukrainian maintenance uh, professionals are able to service those uh, that, that equipment. So, Therese, you know, we know what needs to happen, which is more weapons being provided to Ukraine. But what's your sense of uh, what's standing in the way of this? Is it a matter of political will or political support from Ukraine's allies? What's essentially stopping uh, the steady supply of weapons into Ukraine right now? So there are a couple of things that 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 make this difficult. Um, there are, I mean, one of them is simply the logistics. So for heavy weaponry, tanks and armored vehicles, they need to be um, not just transported to Ukraine, but across Ukraine, very large country to the east. Um, they could be vulnerable to attack. It's also trying to figure out which platform to give Ukraine. And that is, uh, you know, what yep. weapon system can be supported over time. And, you know, there's this whole other question that NATO is facing about its own level of defense expenditure, the, uh, the, the deterrent value of the weapon systems that it has. So there's a lot of bargaining going on uh, within NATO about what to supply. Uh, there's some sense that the Biden administration is a little bit behind, say, the UK in appreciating the or being willing to supply some of the heavier weaponry. Um, there is a fear of escalation, of course, in some quarters. So there's an yep. open debate about how far they can go without risking well, okay. um, Let's know, just talk about that yep. point. Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, was talking about the fact that she is looking to migrate Ukrainian forces from Soviet, post-Soviet kit to NATO kit. If, if Russia is fighting an enemy using post-Soviet kits, that feels like a very different environment to a Russia that is fighting Ukraine armed with NATO kits. Um, we, we, Amory Hordern did a really interesting interview with, with Hordakovsky yesterday talking about the idea that, that Putin already feels that he's fighting NATO. If he's fighting Ukraine that looks like NATO, 
How significant an escalation is that? I think I agree with Khodorkovsky. I think in Putin's mind, this is uh, this is a fight with NATO, that Ukraine is a stand-in for an existential battle with the West. And that that's that's simply how he sees it. And, you know, there was an interview that uh, Sergei Karaganov gave um, recently, a, a, a prominent um, longtime advisor and, and foreign policy commentator, in which he said, we simply can't lose. He didn't define victory. But, you know, in Putin's mind, that he will have to come away with something. He may be looking at May 9th, which is Victory Day in yep. Russia, date when you normally have these grand military parades, as the day in which he will be able to declare, wants to be able to declare some kind of progress on the ground. But I mean, I think that that's the question both for Ukraine and for Russia is, you know, at what point uh, is there something to discuss? And Putin is famous for, f you know, starting conflicts and freezing them, and then uh, using uh, Russia's position on the ground to reignite them and to keep the country weak. We saw it in Georgia. We've seen it in Azerbaijan. Uh, we've seen it in Moldova. So, you know, that's something Ukraine will be very wary of seeing happen. Andreas, to the point of Putin essentially viewing this as a proxy war against NATO, is there how much of a possibility is there then that this doesn't end with Ukraine and in fact this is just the beginning and potentially spread to other NATO allies in the region? Was you know, Malcolm Rifkin, the former defense and foreign secretary, put it to me, you know, if you if you want to know what Hitler's up to, read Mein Kampf. If you want to know what Putin is up to, read his writings in the last five years. They're very much geared toward reestablishing a sort of imperial Russian stance. And so I think that threat can't be discounted. And that's part of why uh, we've seen such unity from NATO in the West, at least on the uh, idea that, that what's at stake here yep. uh, as as grave as the lives and the and the the infrastructure and the territory of Ukraine is 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 still even you know much bigger still. If we dig into our von Klausowitz and think about kind of the the spectrum of of events, um, you, you basically have a, a a move out of sanctions into military options. Is that what we're looking at here? Are we looking at sanctions not delivering? And ultimately, therefore, military options are, are the kind of the extension of that diplomatic effort. So we've definitely weaponized, you know, every economic tool in the book. We've had more extensive yeah. sanctions than, than we've seen. Biden has been very clear, as has NATO, that the U.S. NATO forces will not engage in combat operations. And I think that it's an important signal to send to the Kremlin. I think they have every intention of holding to it. But we are now seeing you know, more weaponry, so, more heavy so, weaponry. So that, that includes chemical, use of chemical weapons. Trump fired weapons into Syria. Um, if you were to see horrendous images coming out of Mariupol, does that still apply? I, I, I'm no. wondering where the threshold is here. Look, I mean, I, I think if we were to see the use of, you know, tactical nuclear weapons or chemical weapons, we'd, you know, we'd have to have, I think there would be a whole other level of discussion. Um, but there is a clear communication to the Kremlin from the Biden administration, from NATO, that is intended to prevent, you know, that kind of escalation. I think the counter sort of point to that is, does Putin believe that the U.S. would step in? Yep. You know, does he believe that that commitment, that Article 5 NATO commitment, is as solid as well, the U.S. has said over the years? And, and that's what he might want to test. Let's hope we don't end up testing let's that. Therese, thank you very much <laughs> indeed. Therese Raphael, greatly appreciated. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 18 minutes past the hour. Welcome back. The French go to the polls this weekend in the first round. Current polling puts Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen in the second round. The second round vote, the runoff vote on the 24th. The polling in the second round is where life gets interesting for the markets. At the moment, the polling puts Emmanuel Macron on track to retain the Elysee, but only just, and we are well within the margin of error. Financial markets are beginning to therefore to wake up to the risk that we could see Marine Le Pen delivering a victory. But what kind of a victory would it be and what would that risk look like from a financial markets point of view? Bloomberg's John Arthur is writing about this a little bit earlier on uh, on the Bloomberg Opinion page. John, it is getting mm. very close. We're well within the margin of error within the second round. Mm. What do markets make of the risk? Well, they have, uh, if you look at bond markets, the spread of French over German bond yields has widened very significantly, very quickly in the last few days. Uh, and that's plainly because of uh, plainly because of the perceived political risk. The biggest spread we've seen was in the run-up to the, the last election five years ago, um, when people were very scared of a, of a possible Le Pen victory. Uh, this is now uh, taking shape as, a, as another perceive, perceived big escalation in, in French political risk. Similarly, if you look at stocks, France is one of the less uh, uh, affected European nations by uh, the conflict in Ukraine. Um, you would expect French stocks to be outperforming the rest of the continent in the, the last few days as the poll numbers have really started to improve for Le Pen. They've, they've dipped. So plainly, the market perceives a risk here. I'm intrigued by the fact that um, the they're not as worried as they were um, yep. five years ago when Macron's polling lead for a second round was much wider than it is now. But John, you yourself captured the nuance here that uh, the Marine Le Pen running for this election is not the same candidate as was running in 2017. It seems like she has really shifted from being an outright Eurosceptic or or downright anti-Euro candidate Mm. to a bit more of a populist sort of candidate and moving away from that anti-Euro rhetoric. And so do you really think that is it as much of a negative now to financial markets as it would have been? in 2017? That's an interesting question. You, you've, you've also got the fact that the, the legislature is coming up in another couple of months and that will have a very big effect on exactly uh, exactly how much freedom whoever the next president is can uh, will have to, to move. However, uh, I do think that there are big areas of or causes for concern if you do have a Le Pen victory. First of all, she's still definitely Eurosceptic, if not, um, you know, Talking about leaving the uh, leaving the euro, uh, and that is a problem at a moment when Europe is being put or the EU is being put to the test in a way that hasn't been seen in uh, in generations by what's happening in Ukraine. You also have the fact that Germany is also under new management, um, and Olaf Scholz, on the face of it, is not one of the more likely politicians to find a mo- mode of getting on with uh, with Marine yeah. Le Pen. So. Uh, I mean, five years ago, the Brexit referendum had just happened. Trump had been elected and people were scared about populism in a way that might have been excessive. I do think at this point there's actually more of a risk of real, real damage um, from a Le Pen victory, which 
I'm nervous that the the market hasn't totally got yet. So okay, so let's get into that. What that real damage would look like hmm. at, at the moment. To, to come back to the kind of the eurosceptic line, at the moment there is this expectation in markets that we are going to see more unified policy responses from Europe to significant threats that it faces right now. Uh, Ukraine being one of them, but the energy transition and others are, are certainly equally uh, hmm. as significant. You could argue. Would would all of that kind of pulling in the same direction disappear if Marine Le Pen were in the Elysee? I doubt all of it would disappear, but I imagine quite a lot of it would. And the, But the point of view from people pricing risks in markets is that you don't know. Uh, and until you've got a clearer idea of that, it makes sense to take something off the table to, uh, to, guard, against, to guard against those yeah. risks. Certainly, there is a risk, which I cannot put a number on, that things would get uh, worse, that a lot of those... Uh, uh, planned moves in a in a unified European direction would wouldn't happen after all. So, John, as far as how this plays out in markets, do you see this more as a slow burn over the next few months? Once we see what happens with the Parliament elections, once we see what Le Pen actually does when she's in place, and which um, particular asset class are you worried about as far as the um, biggest impact goes? I, th- I think generally, what happens when you get an, a, a, an election result that that markets really don't like is that you would get an immediate sell-off, um, and then you get a recovery, even if then not so much, no, no better than had been feared. Um, that's that's the way markets operate. So I think if you do get a Le Pen victory, which is still on balance pretty unlikely, but then you could have said the same thing about Brexit and yep. Trump five years ago. If you do get a Le Pen victory, I imagine you'll get, particularly in the stock market, you'll get quite a sell-off. Uh, and that you then need to wait for karma heads to resume over over Le Pen and to see exactly where the, the land lies after the legislative election to see how um, how markets find a balance. I think this has been ignored partly because it really did look as though Macron was getting in without too much difficulty for a long time, and obviously partly because we've got some very very big other things to to yeah, worry about. Markets feel pretty distracted. Right but now. yes, exactly. But I I, I would imagine if if you do get President Le Pen, that's going to cause quite a sell-off, particularly in the stock market. Uh, and that will actually, you know, thinking of people like Lula da Silva in, in Brazil 20 years ago, the, that those reactions to, to election results that markets don't like can often be great buying opportunities, but you have to wait for the buying opportunity, you have to. Well, wait I, I have to say, first. I was there on the night that Trump was elected in New York. The buying <laughs> opportunity uh, appeared pretty quickly. People were yes. leaving parties uh, potentially to uh, to take advantage of exactly. it. Exactly, John. Really appreciate the time as ever. Really fascinating piece uh, delivered on Bloomberg Opinion this morning. Bloomberg's John Authors. Up next, we're going to talk about the Fed. Mike McKee's going to be joining us. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Christina Kino this evening. Uh, quick check on where we are with equity markets. The Nasdaq stateside now down by a uh, full 1%. The S&P's down by around half of 1%. European markets closing down around half of 1%. The FTSE 100 uh, closing at 75.51 spot, 81 down by 
uh, around half of 1%. Uh, in the commodities market, we've seen Brent crude dipping below 100 bucks a barrel today. Uh, it is currently trading at $99.31. And we continue to see the sell-off that we've been seeing over the last few days in bond markets. Uh, that was true today for the UK 10-year, now trading uh, with a yield of 1.73. So those are the markets. We'll come back and talk more about central banks in just a moment. Mr. Mike McKee will be joining us. But in the meantime, Charlie Pellet's here to update us on the headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. The United Nations General Assembly has voted to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council, but the measure garnered a substantial number of abstentions in addition to votes against. It was the first time a nation had been suspended since a similar vote against Libya in 2011. NATO and American officials are warning the war in Ukraine may last for weeks or even years as Kyiv's foreign minister pleads for urgent military assistance before it's too late to make a difference in its fight against Russian forces. Poland and the UK have agreed to propose a joint commission to support Ukraine with the long-term coordination of arms, supplies and training, as well as help Ukraine to identify its needs and modernize its military. That word today from Poland's president after a meeting with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Germany's luxury yacht maker to the oligarchs is making sure it knows who its customers are. Lursen, which built two of the three largest super yachts detained by authorities over their links to sanction Russian billionaires, has sent around questionnaires saying it needs updated information on the ultimate ownership of yachts birthed or under construction at its sites. That according to a letter seen by Bloomberg News. And the United States has issued orders suspending Aeroflot, Russia's biggest airline, and two others from receiving American parts and services for their planes, a step that officials expect over time will limit their ability to fly. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So let's talk more about the Fed. It's been a busy week for the Federal Reserve. The the minutes yesterday, obviously, uh, in, to a certain extent, front run by Leo, uh, front ran by Leo Brainard, uh, but nevertheless hawkish. And the hawkishness continues today. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis President Jim Bullard now saying that he favours raising interest rates sharply uh, to counter the highest inflation in no- nearly four decades seen over in the United States. Uh, he is suggesting um, half point high in May, along with shrinking the Fed's balance sheet aggressively. I quote, uh, I would like the committee to get to 3, 3.25% on the policy rates in the second half of the year. That's Jim Bullard talking to reporters a little earlier on today after delivering speech at the University of Missouri. Let's analyse all of this, where we are. Have we seen a significant step change this week? The person to ask that question to, as always, is Bloomberg's Mike McKee, who joins us in New York. Mike, Bullard's definitely at the hawkish end of the spectrum, but he seems to be kind of front-running a hawkish tilt that the rest of the policy um, the, the policy group at the Fed are ultimately following. Uh, the minutes revealing that there were more members who favoured a 50 base point hike at the last decision where we got 25, but were dissuaded from doing so uh, because of the fact that we had the conflict erupting in Ukraine. In terms of the the shift that we've seen over the last couple of days, how significant is it? 
I don't think it's so much a, a shift as it is just filling out the details. The markets had already assumed that the Fed was going to do 50 in uh, May, and they're leaning towards 50 in June. It's kind of a question of what do the data tell us between now and then? Do they support the idea? If so, then the Fed's going to do that. Bullard has been out in front. He was the first to call for 50 basis points, and then some others uh, said they were interested, but the, the war in Ukraine, as you said, uh, came between them and a 50 basis point move. So he may be uh, not too far off where the rest of the Fed is going. It'll depend on the data that we get, the CPI numbers that come out next week. So, Mike, you know, Brainerd comments plus, of course, the minutes put a lot more emphasis on the balance sheet aspect of Fed policy, which seems to be something that has kind of taken a backseat to the rates discussion over the last few weeks. Now, do you get a sense that Fed watchers, economists, investors haven't fully considered the um, full impact of both of these policy levers being uh, implemented by the Fed simultaneously? We have the balance sheet runoff uh, going at such a pace, uh, 95 billion a month, 1 trillion a year, and of course, the pace of rate hikes that are being priced by markets. Do you think that we haven't fully grasped what effect on growth that could actually have over the next few months? Well, I think the Fed has an idea, uh, although they don't really know the impact of the balance sheet because this is only the second time we've done it. There's no kind of historical record, and you don't kind of know what uh, h- how much taking duration uh, out of the Fed's portfolio and giving it back to the market is going to affect interest rates. There are studies that show everything from 25 basis points to 150 basis points. So it's kind of hard for the markets maybe to know. Each uh, shop is going to have their own estimate. The real question is, how far does the Fed think it has to go? And that that's what people are trying to figure out. They don't know what neutral is. The Fed has said they think it's 2.4%, but that's uh, a number you can only observe looking backwards in time. So if the uh, neutral rate is higher than what the Fed thinks, then we could get a significantly higher uh, interest rate from the Fed, as Jim Bullard is suggesting. Is there a sense of frustration here that financial conditions are not tightening? And, and, and I come back to kind of what Christine was talking about just a moment ago. The, the, the balance sheet is just enormous now. Comparing it with 2018, where they tried to run it down and ultimately didn't run it down very far, the, the, the balance sheet has expanded significantly as a result of the pandemic and other factors since then. Do, do, is there a sense maybe in the market that also the Fed is underestimating how aggressive it's going to have to be to tighten financial conditions significantly, just given the scale of that balance sheet uh, and other factors. Yeah, I think a lot of people on Wall Street are thinking the Fed is behind the curve and doesn't yet embrace the idea of significantly going over neutral. But that also kind of depends on your view of what it's going to take to slow inflation. And there's a lot of different variation uh, among all the various economist shops. So, The Fed is, at this point, trying to catch up. They only make their forecasts once a quarter, and Wall Street adjusts every day, Global Wall Street adjusts every day. So uh, they're always going to kind of be perceived as being behind the curve. But you do get people like um, Jim Bullard, and then I spoke with Esther George earlier this week, and she said, we could go over neutral easily. So uh, I I think it'll... it will even out over time, but people don't know. Now, the one thing to keep in mind is the balance sheet's big, but uh, 
the impact is going to be different in different categories. In the housing area, we've already seen mortgage rates go over 5%. Uh, refinancing is pretty much done, and we may see housing slow. So even if financial conditions are looser in some areas, they may be tight in areas that do count. So, Mike, let's zoom this out a couple of years from now, given that the, the, all this discussion about where the neutral rate is, or, or at least the terminal rate is. As far as markets are concerned, they see that peaking at around 325 in agreement with Bullard. And then they're already starting to price in rate cuts uh, by 2024. Do you think that that feels about right, given where we are, or is there a potential for that to actually start coming earlier as the Fed kind of realizes how much of a break on growth, uh, Dave? Uh, implemented via both the balance sheet runoff and the rate hikes that are upcoming. Well, that's based on history, basically. People looking at what happened before when the Fed was raising interest rates in most situations, they've sent the economy into recession. So then you would price rate cuts. It's kind of hard to tell this time because there's so many unique factors, inflationary pressures that came from COVID, inflationary pressures that are coming from the war in Ukraine, uh, and then inflationary pressures that are just generated yeah. in general. That's the hard part to know is how that's going to end up. And so at this point, uh, the Fed is is uh, going to have to just wait and see. And markets are going to be cautious. They're going to price some of that in. But whether they really believe it, I think you need more time to know whether that's going to be uh, a realistic possibility. OK. Let's talk about where the Fed wants to go with this. It, it is clear uh, uh, that it wants to deal with inflation. My question is, where does it want to get to with inflation, Mike? in theory, should get down to 2% again. What will it tolerate in terms of medium-term inflation? If we get inflation down to 3%, is that good enough? 3.5%, 2.5%? I just kind of, what, I, what are they thinking about? We've had this whole idea of a kind of symmetrical inflation target, and I'm trying to understand what ultimately that is going to mean and, and how long they would tolerate above 2% inflation is sub-3% inflation good enough? I think what they're going to look at is the economic conditions at the time. Because if they try to push down, it looks like they can, the general perception is they get to three in a year or two. Yep. Then what does the economy look like? Can it withstand continued tightening to try to bring it down to two? There's been a lot of pressure on the Fed to raise their target to 3%. Exactly. Makes yeah. makes more sense. Uh, and so they may end up doing that. Right now, they're going to focus on the inflation aspect. And then I think they'll be looking at their uh, the way they do policy, their uh, framework, and try to decide if what they had before still works. Now, Mike, the other dilemma, I suppose, that the Fed is facing at the moment is that it's telegraphing all of this hawkishness and really ramping up the emphasis on multiple 50 basis point rate hikes. But we've barely really seen that budge financial conditions. If we're looking at the Bloomberg Index, for instance, it is still technically in the accommodative side of things. Um, when might we see this really playing out on, on that side of the real economy? Well, it's really going to depend on what you think neutral actually is. Uh, the Fed is going to 
go at a measured pace doesn't mean 25, but they're not going to probably do 75 or 100 or anything like that. So they will move. That's a brave call. (laughs) Well, yeah, I could be. You guys can have me back and give me a hard time if they do. Uh, They will move and they will see what happens and they'll move and see what happens. And remember, then they're going to start running down the balance sheet and they'll have to see what that kind of pressure that adds as well. Uh, And then the question is, how fast does the economy slow? Because then uh, earnings will slow. And in theory, the stock market will uh, stall out or or the gains will be limited. And that will result in tighter financial conditions as well. It's kind of hard to make a prediction at this point exactly when that happens. So many things for the markets to think about. Mike, thank you very much indeed for updating us on the latest. Bloomberg's Mike McKee. Christine, the, the other thing that everybody's kind of f- sort of focusing on right now is real rates. We're getting very close to having a positive real rate in the United States. Um, you probably need to get the tens kind of well north of, of zero to have a kind of entire curve, uh, sort of tens, fives, twos, et cetera, that, that are positive as well. But that will, that's a complete shift for financial markets. Because at that point, Tina, we all know Tina very well, there is no alternative to stocks, starts to look a little bit more questionable. Absolutely, Guy. And I think this is why we are starting to see questions among investors. Is it time now to reverse that rotation and finally make your way back into bonds? It's a trade that really did not pay off in the first quarter with that historic loss of uh, almost 6%. But, you know, we are getting to levels now where bondholders could potentially be actually getting compensated for inflation. And so a fair question to ask and potentially something that could start reversing those flows into stocks and back to bonds, at least for the next few months. And it's going to be interesting as well because we've got the earnings season about to kick off as well. That starts next week. And... And we don't know yet. So many companies have been coy in providing guidance as to what the impact of this higher inflation is having on their business. But if it turns out that actually the guidance is quite negative, i.e. margins get squeezed, there's another factor in there as well. Absolutely. We may be getting to a bit of a perfect storm here for stocks, at least in terms of a reversal. And it could be potentially something that changes the the fundamentals and, and how investors think about it longer term. Well, let's hope we don't get the perfect storm tomorrow, because up next, we're going to be taking you to Cape Canaveral, where I hear the weather is a little inclement, but our Ed Ludlow is to be found there. This ahead uh, of a big SpaceX launch tomorrow, uh, four astronauts going up to the International Space Station, an international space station uh, whose future is now very much in question uh, as sanctions and the falling out between the United States and Russia uh, leads to question about uh, where it goes next. Does it stay in space? Does it continue to get supported? It splashes down in 2031. What happens between now and then? Ed joins us next from Cape Canaveral. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Christine Aquino. Um, The conflict in Ukraine is having... An impact that is quite literally out of this world. The International Space Station's future is being called into question as a result of the falling out between Russia and the United States. Tomorrow, though, we are going to see 
four astronauts potentially lifting off 11.17 Eastern time, I understand, is the uh, the launch uh, time. Uh, that's around 4.15 UK time. There will be four astronauts lifting off on a SpaceX, rock, SpaceX rocket uh, that's going to deliver them up to the International Space Station. My understanding is there are three Russian cosmonauts up there already. At Cape Canaveral, for us as ever to cover these important events, is Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. Ed, talk us through this mission and why it's so important. Yeah, so it's billed as the first all-private mission in the sense that each of the four astronauts are private citizens. They're not current NASA astronauts. Three of them, according to the Washington Post, paid $55 million for a seat. So, you know, it's a healthy chunk of change. And the, the carrier involved, SpaceX, SpaceX is the, the rocket provider, if you like, is a private company. And, you know, there have been private missions to the ISS before. You know, most recently in December, Yazuka Mazawa, who's a Japanese billionaire, he rode on a Russian Soyuz rocket and he spent 12 days on the ISS but he used a public sector launch provider to get there so it's significant you know it's a real move into the commercialization of space and for Axiom I would describe them as kind of the travel agent right if SpaceX is the rocket provider NASA is the host up on the ISS um, Axiom's the, the the group that gets it all booked for you. Now, Ed, obviously a big deal, a momentous occasion for SpaceX if they do manage to go through with the launch. Is there a risk that that doesn't happen at this stage? What else are the potential hurdles at this stage that they could uh, face that could stop them from actually going through with it? Well, the first one's weather. I mean, it's, I'm standing at the Kennedy Space Center. I'm about three miles from the launch pad. I have a great view of the Falcon 9 booster and Dragon capture on top of it, and it's stormy, you know, big, thick thunderclouds, storm clouds, which is pretty common. You know, the weather changes here really quickly. The other thing to factor in is that the launch window Guy was explaining at 11.17 Eastern time is what we call an instantaneous launch window. It means that if they don't think they can launch at that exact moment, they won't because they that, that time has been chosen because it would put the, the, the spacecraft on a trajectory to the ISS, right? Because the ISS is overhead at that time. You know, it orbits the Earth. So weather is the biggest factor right now. Okay, let's talk about the ISS um, and Have its to. future. Yeah. It, it is it is scheduled it's scheduled to smash down in, in what is it nine years from now? But between yes. now and then, we don't know who's ultimately going to be on board and holding right. an interest. The Ukrainian conflict is casting a long shadow. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's probably a slight understatement. I mean, Dmitry Rogozin, he's the head of Roscosmos, which is the the state entity behind Russia's space efforts, right? And he said at the weekend that if the sanctions, economic sanctions that are currently in place on Russia, um, including trade sanctions, are not lifted, then the threat is that Russia pulls out of the International Space Station Agreement, which has been in place since 1998. You know, you forget that this space station has been up there quite a while now, and it's been a long-standing cooperation between Europe, United States, and Russia. But in terms of activity, it has been the United States and Russia that have dominated launch. Um, and in more recent years, you know, the U.S. has been reliant on Russia because once the shuttle program was decommissioned, the U.S. has been very reliant on the Soyuz rocket blasting off from Kazakhstan or other sites in Russia to get their own astronauts up to ISS. So things are pretty tense right now. 
So, Ed, you know, walk us through kind of the potential impact of that further out into the future. If we do get a bit of a breakdown yeah. in, in relations ge- geopolitically, how do you foresee that playing out? Is there a potential, for instance, for some of these more uh, these private space exploration companies to have to pick up the slack, essentially, um, if the government side of the funding for all these projects kind of falls through because of the current uh, Ukraine conflict? Yeah, it's certainly the right question. I mean, the sanctions have had two effects. The first is that there are American launch companies, literally American rocket companies like um, Northrop Grumman and the United Launch Alliance, which is a, a JV between Lockheed and Boeing, that use Russian-built rocket engines. Those Russian-built rocket engines are now not accessible to them. Um, the other thing as well is that there are American satellite providers, OneWeb being a really interesting example. They had planned to send satellites up on a Soyuz rocket, and they had to pivot. And who did they pivot to SpaceX. So this is a really interesting launch on Friday because it's kind of emblematic of of the position SpaceX has put itself into, but also how it could benefit from the conflict. Is is America in the position that if the Russians did withdraw from their support of of ISS, that America could now step in uh, and basically take over the whole project, given the fact that we have the SpaceX capability that we're hopefully going to see demonstrated tomorrow? Right. Well, I think there are probably some accountants and budget office officials at NASA who would get a little worried about Russia pulling its contributions from the ISS. You know, it's not cheap to run. It's not a divisible split, so it's not equal between each party. Right. And I have to be honest, I don't know what the dollar value of Russian contributions are. The, the space station is essentially split into two halves, a, a kind of US, European, Western side and a Russian side, for want of a better explanation. You know, the other question is, there's these four private astronauts going up on Friday, and officials keep getting asked, will these four private astronauts three Ameri- two Americans, one Spanish, one Israeli, will they actually cross over into the Russian side and say hello? And they're able to do so if the Russians invite them, but we're waiting to hear if that will happen. Ed, we look forward to the launch tomorrow. Hopefully it will be successful. We know you're going to provide us uh, with some great coverage. Ed Ludlow joining us from Cape Canaveral. Stormy today. Christine was laughing at me as I segued uh, into this I was segment. admiring the Admiring. Segue. Okay, I, I think that's one way of she's she's maybe retroactively changing the history of this uh but we'll get some great coverage coming up hopefully we'll be able to bring you that uh, that launch live as well uh, as i say that's going to be happening uh, at around well no at exactly 11:17 eastern time tomorrow that's 4:17 uh, uk time uh, so i'll be on air with kelly lines on bloomberg television and hopefully we'll be able to bring you those pictures that wraps things up for today we've got some great coverage coming up tomorrow uh, obviously the volatility in these markets uh, continues to persist uh, and we will be monitoring that for you tick by tick anyway hope you enjoy the show this was the cable this is bloomberg